First Peter chapter 4 verse 7 tells us the end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and be sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now in churches... You've heard about prayer. If you've ever been to a church, you know that prayer is something that's talked about. We write books about it. We read verses on it. We share about it. But oftentimes we miss what's really going on in prayer. I want to spend some time looking at prayer this morning. Genesis chapter 32 is an amazing chapter. So full of stuff that we're going to both look at a couple of prayers this morning and then Wednesday night we're going to go back and really pour over what's happening in this chapter because there's so much here. But this morning, I want to focus on prayer. And I want you to think about some of the leaders of the past and some of the things that they prayed. For example, Job. Job prayed in tremendous faith following a breathtaking family tragedy. Now, imagine this for a moment. If you found out in the same day that your sons and daughters, all of them were wiped out. All of them. You didn't just lose one to battle. You didn't just lose one to an accident. You didn't just lose one family member, but all of them at once. And Job's response in Job chapter 1 verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a prayer. Job knows that regardless of circumstance, the name of God is still to be blessed. Or what about Jonah, praying from the bowels of a great fish, surrounded by all that acid and gunk and fish heads and tails, and not a pretty place to be. But in the middle of that, in the midst of that, where most people might completely give up hope, Jonah prays in Jonah chapter 2 verse 4, he says, I've been expelled from your sight, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. And down in verse 9, Jonah says, salvation is from the Lord. His hope, his only hope of getting out of that fish is in the Lord. Jonah knows that his salvation can only come from there. David, David, a great leader in Israel, he prays with stunning intimacy and boldness and confidence. Man, read through the Psalms. The way David approaches God is bold. Listen to these words, Psalm chapter 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O my God of righteousness. Answer me. Because you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And I often wonder, what was it that made David so bold? And the answer is experience. Because he discovered that by praying to God, by being in contact with the Father, that there was response. That God did want to be in that kind of a relationship. And so it brought about in David's life confidence and boldness in the experience of God's faithfulness. What about the ultimate example of prayer we see in Jesus who abdicates his will to the Father in the darkness and gloom of Gethsemane, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. And in Matthew 26, 42, Jesus said, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Man, Lord, even if the worst case scenario is true, Your will be done. Jesus gives up His will completely to the Father. Pictures of prayer. For in prayer we we can bless God. And by prayer we can gain salvation. In prayer we experience the Father's faithfulness. And as we pray, we learn like Jesus, bit by bit, day by day, in prayer, to abdicate our will to the Father. 
You see, Bible study alone doesn't cut it because Bible study alone will give you information. It will encourage you. It will lift you up. It will focus you on the Father. But without prayer, there's no giving up of our will. And prayer draws us to that point. So this morning, I want to encourage you to allow the Lord to teach you some important principles about prayer from an unlikely situation in the unlikely prayer life of Jacob. Jacob who conned his brother out of the birthright, who connived to steal his brother's blessing, who contended with his equally deceitful uncle Laban, but who finally connected to God in an amazing and powerful way. Whatever we may be able to say about Jacob, whatever we say about his faults and his problems, he was a man of prayer. Before we go there, let's pray together this morning. Lord, as we open your word, I pray for a blessing. I pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts. That you will express things to us in ways that we can understand. That you will impress upon us, Lord, the connection that we have with you in prayer. Father, that you would shake us free of all of the stuff that gets in the way when we try to pray. Our own guilt because we haven't prayed enough lately. Our fear of not knowing, Father, the right words to say. God, help us just to be people who come to you and seek you out like children seeking out the help of a father in prayer. Holy Spirit, be our guide and our teacher this morning. We yield this lesson to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Wait, I got this written down because so i got to say it right. Machanaim. Okay, got that? Impressed? Good, we'll move on. <laughs> Verse 3, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent them to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau. And furthermore, he's coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with them and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. They did that when war was imminent. They were divided into two so if one was conquered the other could escape or live to fight another day. And in verse 8 it says, If Esau comes to the one company which attacks it and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. What's going on here with Jacob? Remember that behind him is Laban. He's had 20 years with Laban, and the 20 years did not end well. Those of you who were in the Bible study in chapter 31 this Wednesday night, you saw Laban and Jacob ended, they parted in a contentious relationship. Some of you have heard the phrase Mizpah. Mizpah, used by Christians oftentimes with this verse, Genesis 31:49. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. And it's such a nice sentiment. But it wasn't nice when it was spoken. Mizpah means watchtower, and Laban was saying, I need a watchtower to keep an eye on you, Jacob, you deceitful little jerk. I'm going to watch you, and if you cross this place, I'm drawing a line in the sand, and if you come back into my land, Jacob, you can count on some harm. Likewise, I'm not going to cross over into your land. We will go our own ways. So behind him, he's burned a bridge. 
Jacob's not going back to Laban anytime soon. It is not a good relationship. But what's in front of him? His brother Esau. And 20 years before, the last thing Jacob remembered of Esau was his brother murderously breathing threats. Jacob, I want to kill him. He stole my birthright and my blessing. And when my father dies, Esau said, I'm taking Jacob out. I'm going to kill him. If he goes back to Laban, Jacob's toast. But if he goes on to Esau, he could be scrambled eggs. He's not in a good place here. Have you ever been there? Between a rock and a hard place? You can't move. You know if you go back, you're in trouble. But if you go forward, how's that going to work? So you just kind of sit there, mired, stuck in the moment, as Bono sings, and you can't get out of it. You don't know what to do. And here's Jacob in this place. He's walking a very fine line. And so he sends out flocks and herds ahead of him, hoping to appease Esau. But as his men see Esau and come running back to him, what do they, what do they tell Jacob? He's coming. And he's got an army of 400 men. And Jacob is scared to death. So what does he do? What do you do in that kind of a situation where you don't know what to do? Jacob prays. He prays, and in chapter 32, he prays twice, two different prayers in as many nights before he meets up with Esau. Now, something you've got to understand here is that Jacob is praying in crisis. And I want you to know that that's all right. What do you mean by that? I mean that so often we get ourselves into a crisis, into a tight spot, between a rock and a hard place, and we fear to pray because we haven't been praying. Well, here I come again. I haven't prayed in months, but now that I need it, now I go to God. And then we start to sit there and wallow in our guilt, and God's going, Would you stop wallowing and talk to me? Come on, bring your problems to me. Bring the crisis. That's why I'm here. Yes, I want relationships with you all the time. But don't forget he's your father, and don't be afraid to go to your father just because you haven't been to your father in a while. That's stupid human tricks. Mind tricks that we play on ourselves that keep us from just going to the Lord who wants to hear from his kids. Well, look what happens in verse 9. Jacob's first prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, verse 12, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. In the first of Jacob's two prayers here, he prays three things that stand out. You might want to jot down. If you take notes, these are three things to notice. The first one is that he recognizes his position before God. This is a different Jacob in this prayer. This is a more humble Jacob. For in verse 10, we see him before God saying, I am unworthy of all your loving kindness, of all your faithfulness. Jacob realizes finally in his life that all of the blessings, every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, from his God. And he recognizes as he prays before God in this moment of distress, I'm not worthy even to come before you. I'm not worthy of what you've done. He comes before God recognizing his position. And number two, 
he relies on the protection of God. He relies on God's protection. Verse 11, he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. This is a brutal honesty and a humility wrapped up together. I fear him. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've schemed and connived all the way to this point, and I have no answers this time. God, protect me. He recognizes his position, and he relies on the protection of God. Now, I was going to spend more time on those, but the last thing in this prayer and one thing in the next prayer are so huge, I want to spend the rest of our time on them. Number three, the thing in this prayer I really want you to see, Jacob reminds God of his promises. He reminds God of his promises. Verse 9, O God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. You remember saying that, God? I'm stuck here in this, in this difficult place. And if I go back, I get nailed. And if I go forward, I get nailed. But you told me to go forward. God, this is what you said. You promised you'd prosper me if I went back to the country. And in the last verse of the prayer, verse 12, he said, For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. At both the beginning and the end of this prayer, Jacob reminds God of his promises. He calls on the Lord to be faithful to his word. Lord, you are the one who said go home. Lord, you are the one who said I will prosper you. God, Jehovah. And he calls God by both names, by the way. Anytime in the Old Testament you see the word God, it tends to be Elohim. And when you see the word Lord, it's Jehovah. And Jacob is appealing to both aspects of God. Elohim, the great creator God, and Jehovah, the personal father God. And Jacob says, Lord, it is to your word that I appeal. Another way to say this is, Father, I've got to take you at your word. I have no other alternatives. I have no other choice. I have no other options here. I've got to take you at your word. Jacob is praying the word. He's praying through God's word, through God's promises. Isaiah 45.11 says something I think is amazing. Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me of the things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me. It's one of the very few times in the Bible where God will say, Human beings, created beings, children, you command me. You command me. Now listen carefully here. God is not saying, you boss me around in prayer. He's not saying, feel free to come to me and say, God, look, it's going to be my way or no way at all. Okay? I've been doing this Christian relationship thing for a while. I think i got it figured out. I need you to do what I'm asking you to do. My will be done, saith I. And God says, no, 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 no. My will be done, says the Lord. So what is Isaiah talking about? What is God talking about when he says, you command me? What he says specifically is, command me regarding the works of my hands. Command me regarding what I have done. Command me regarding my will. In other words, pray the promises of God. Pray the promises. Jesus said in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
Now people have looked at that verse and said, ask it, whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, when I ask God for stuff, it doesn't always happen. So obviously that verse isn't true. And Jesus says, no, abide in me and my words abide in you. And if that's the case, if my word is in you living, alive, and active, and then you come to me in prayer and ask for things, it will be done. Why, Lord? Because you're praying my word. Because you're asking by my promises. Because the things that I want to see happen and make happen and create and do in this world are the things that you're concerned about because you are in my word. And Jacob is doing that. He's praying the promises of God. Lord, you said this. This is what you said. I remember. And now I'm calling you to those promises. I'm recalling your word. And I'm asking you to fulfill your word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You know, some people have estimated there are over 3,000 promises in the Bible. Someone else estimated there are over 5,000 promises in the Bible. The bottom line is there are a lot of promises. So many that it's difficult to count. Promises from God the Father the Creator to you and I, His kids. Promises that we would do well to pour over and to study and to read and to know and to understand. And God is saying, take my promises and pray them. But there's a problem we have in the world today. How can we pray the promises of God when we don't know the promises of God? How can we even approach God regarding His Word when we're not in His Word? When we don't know what His Word tells us? George Mueller described that the key to his great ministry to orphans was arguing with God. He said, I argued with God. In his book, The Man from Bristol, Mueller wrote, I take the promises of the Word and I argue with the Lord. Not in order to convince God, but to convince me. I pray the promises of the Word. And Matthew Henry wrote long ago, Where God guides, God provides. Chuck Smith took that same phrase for the Calvary Chapel movement and began to use it over and over and over. Where the Lord guides, the Lord provides. Now let me ask you something. Bridge, Christian Fellowship, do you believe that? Where the Lord guides, the Lord provides. Do you believe that He will provide for this fellowship right here on North Whidbey? Do you believe that He provides for His church, that He does what He says He's going to do? Do you believe that if He guides you somewhere that He has a plan in place and will continue to provide for your needs while you are there? Corporately as a body, as a fellowship, individually in your life. Stop for a moment and go, okay, setting everything else aside, do I believe this or not? Because folks, if we believe it, what are we worried about? What do we ever have to be concerned about where the Lord guides, the Lord provides? And so we need to pray the promises because the promises are what it's all about. The more you study the Word, the more you know the promises therein, the greater your strength, your confidence to go forward knowing that God will follow through. But as I said before, to pray the promises, you've got to know them. You can't bring to mind what you haven't read. Like osmosis when I was in high school. And many of you have done the same thing. Night before the test and you just think, you pray, God, just help me to do well on the test. 
And God's saying, I'd love to help you to do well on the test, but there's nothing on the test that's in your mind. (laughs) I'd love to help you call things to mind, but there's nothing to call up. It's just a big void. Most of my high school life, it was just a big void. To know what's coming on the test, you've got to study ahead of time. And in the same way, to be able to pray the promises of God, you've got to know the promises of God. James 4.2, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And I would add to that, we do not ask because we don't know what's in here. We don't even realize the promises. Every Sunday morning, we open the Bible and study it. Every Wednesday night. We go even deeper and study it. My mother-in-law, they, you know, mom and dad moved up here, and, and it's very cool. And she's been coming now on Wednesday nights and said just this last Wednesday night, can you do what you do on Wednesday night on Sunday morning? Because there's so much there. You don't even touch on Sunday morning. But they're on Wednesday night. And I say, yeah. And if people want what's there, <laughs> they can come on Wednesday night. Oh, Rick, you're doing the guilt thing. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you there's nothing more important during the week that I do than study the Word. It is the most important thing I do through the week. It changes everything. And there is so much contained in here. Like I said this morning, we're not going to touch even an iota of what's in this chapter this morning. On the promises and the power of God's word. This book is full of precious promises. I'm just going to keep inviting everybody to Wednesday night Bible study. And I'm going to keep inviting you to come back Sunday morning and study the Word. Not under compulsion or guilt. I'm also going to continue to keep inviting you to be involved in Bible studies anywhere you hear about them. To be in God's Word on your own at home. To have this book open and used constantly. Why? So you can pray the promises of God. So you can know God's promises. And as you pray, instead of going, Lord, I don't really know what to say today. You can begin to pray the things that you've read. Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure and lovely. Think on these things, Paul says. How can I think on those things? Get into the Word and pray the promises of God. It's what Jacob's doing in this first prayer. He is just recounting to God what God had already told him. He's repeating God's Word in prayer. So pray the scriptures, take God at his word, and remind him of what he has already promised. Now, there's a fourth principle, and it pops out in the middle of one of the strangest passages in scripture. A bizarre story, a bizarre prayer. The fourth principle is Jacob is relentless in prayer. He is relentless in prayer. Skip down to verse 24 and watch what happens. This is now the next night. And Esau's men are even closer. And Jacob has crossed a river kind of off by himself to spend some time in prayer. He doesn't know what's going to happen the next day. He knows he's going to see his brother, but he doesn't know what's going to happen in that meeting. And watch what goes on here. Verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Where's the prayer? 
Uh, he said there were two prayers in this chapter. We heard Jacob pray the first one, but in the second one, that's not a prayer, that's a wrestling match. Exactly. But it's a wrestling match that happened all night long in the context of prayer. Jacob was praying, wrestling, one and the same thing with a very interesting person. Who is this man that Jacob struggled all night with? You may have heard before, people have implicated that it's God. But it doesn't say that. It says Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Well, to understand, you've got to see a little bit more. In the book of Hosea, we get a little commentary on what's going on here. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 3 and 4. Hosea writes that Jacob, talking about Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. Sought favor means made supplication to him. He was praying, he was weeping, he was grabbing on, he was wrestling with this angel from God. Oh, okay, so it's an angel. No, it's God. Yeah, but Hosea says it's an angel. Well, remember, students of the word, that in the Old Testament the word angel is messenger. And we've already seen several different times where this messenger speaks with the authority of God himself. The messenger is God. It's called a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And I believe that's exactly what's going on here, that Jacob, left alone, was with a man, I would say with the Son of Man, with Jesus, who, and wrestled with him until daybreak. Okay, but how do you really know it's God again? If you go further down, Jacob in verse 30 named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. Jacob even recognized he had been wrestling all night long with God, but it wasn't just a physical wrestling match. It was a prayer. Jacob was deep in prayer. He was making supplication too. He was weeping. He was hanging on. Folks, watch this. There's a desire in the heart of Jacob that he has had from early on in his life. It is awesome. And it is, I believe, one of the reasons why God chose Jacob to be his man. Jacob's desire was to have the blessing of God. He always wanted God's blessing. Even here in the middle of this, he says... Let me, the man says, Jesus says, God says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob wants the blessing of God. And in verse 27, he said to him, what is your name? As if God didn't know. And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. I've got a joke with Jacob Crouch. I've been telling him after this morning I can no longer call him Jacob. After today, he's Israel. So if you see Jacob Crouch walking around, just call him Israel. Okay, he's right down here in the second row. I'll point him out if you want to. Okay, we're changing his name. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, saying you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob is relentless in prayer. Look at the tenacity of, his, of this man. He won't let go of God. He's wrestling and this is going on all night and he's just holding on and will not let go. Now, I would put it to you, he's not winning. A lot of times people say, Jacob prevailed over God. He must have been awesome. No, no. This is the same Jacob that 20 years before, remember how much time he spent in the tents. Remember, this was the Jacob who probably was more interested in crochet than in hunting. This is the Jacob that Richard Simmons might know. I won't go there. This is just a soft, light-hearted, kind of a indoor guy. The wrestler? No. 
But he won't let go. He will not let go and God loves that. God loves relentless prayers. People who continue to come to him over and over for the same thing. Jesus said, you know, it's, it's like a parable of, of a woman who was treated unjustly and kept going day after day after day to the judge. And finally the judge said, all right, just because you're relentless, I'll give you what you want. I'm tired of this. Well, God never tires of it, but Jesus says, you be relentless. Don't stop coming to the Lord over and over. You cling to God. You hold on to Him in prayer. Be relentless. Why? Because God loves it. Because the more relentless we are in prayer, guess what's happening? The more time we're spending with God. The more relationship is developing. I'll say something about that again in a minute. But why does God ask Jacob's name here? It's one of those moments in Scripture where you think, is he just playing around? He knows Jacob's name. Why does he ask? Think back to a situation again 20 years before where another father asked Jacob his name and he said, I am Esau. I'm not Jacob, the softies. No, I'm Esau, the hunter, the firstborn. Feel my fake hairy arms. Eat my mother's cooking that I prepared deceptively. I, I'm not Jacob. No, that's not who I am. I've always wanted to be the firstborn. I've always wanted what my brother had. And I read that and I think, wow, how many of us are just like that? We look at our life and go, well, this is one thing, but if I only was like this person, if I only could sing like that person, if I only had the intelligence of that person, if I was only athletic like that person, well, then I could be happy. And gang, it doesn't matter how you dress or how you speak, or how you try to change who you are. You are who you are. And God wants Jacob to understand that. What is your name? And Jacob this time doesn't say Esau. I, I can almost imagine as I read the scripture that Jacob just hangs his head and says, I'm Jacob. I'm the conniver. I'm supplanter. I'm heel catcher. And God says, no. Not anymore. You're not Jacob any longer. Because the one person who can make change in Jacob's life does. God does. And he says, now Jacob, you are no longer the supplanter. You're no longer the deceiver. You are now the prevailer. Israel. Israel is a contraction. It's two words. Sarah and El. Sarah El. Israel. You may remember Sarah meant princess, but in the masculine form it means prince, it means prevailer, it means overcomer. And El is the form of the word for God. You are the overcomer with God now, Jacob. And life is going to be completely different. Because you finally accepted who you were. Jacob, you finally broke before God. Did he actually prevail over God? Yes, he did. But not in the way that we think. God could have snapped Jacob like a little twig. In fact, what's amazing to me, and, and Jim and I were talking about this just the other evening, this idea that they're in this wrestling situation and suddenly Jacob's hip gets out of joint. And for the rest of his life, he will limp. He will have this pain, this reminder of this wrestling with God. And, and we we're saying, you know, there are certain wrestling moves where he could pop someone's hip out of joint. But you know what God does here? I went back last night and I reread this. God touches him. It doesn't say he wrestled him into a position of pop. There you go. Now who's the prevailer? <laughs> right here. Jacob's holding on to him. Please don't leave. Please give me the blessing. And God goes, oh, oh. 
And that's all it took. God could have wasted Jacob. So when did Jacob prevail? When he fell apart. When, as Hosea said, he began to weep and make supplication. When he would not let go of God until he had the blessing. God, I need you. I've got to be blessed by you. I can't go on without you. I can't go forward. I can't go back. I've got to have you in my life. This is the great confusion of all humanity. That the way to prevail with God is to get our life in order. And to make it clean and to make it all right. And that is such a huge mistake. The way you prevail in God's eyes is when you fall before Him with nothing and say like Jacob says, I need you. I've got to have your blessing, otherwise I can't live. That is a wrestling prayer. That is honesty. It's brokenness. And that is the point at which I prevail when my prayer admits that I can't live without the blessing. Look at verse 29. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. And therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he, God, touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. These two nights of prayer radically altered Jacob in his relationship to God, who would now, from from this point forward, be called Israel. Folks, listen. After this wrestling, prayerful encounter, Jacob will never walk the same again. His entire walk has changed. From now on, he's got to use a crutch. From now on, he is not the master of himself as he was before, and he's got a pain to remind him of that. Like Paul says, I had a thorn in my flesh. I had this thing, this problem, this difficulty, and I couldn't get rid of it. And I prayed three times, Paul said, for God to take it away, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need strength. You don't need power. You don't need authority. Now, I think it's really funny. Last night I was talking to Jeff. And I said, hey, Jeff, would you be willing to do the communion meditation in the morning? And you've got to understand that most of the men who come up here and, and do the communion meditation are scared to death. And it just cracks me up. Because these are guys that I respect. And I, you know, in their lives they're very together and with it. And they get up here and it's like, okay. <laughs> I just need to say a few words here. If I can remember what they are, you know, and we all freak out. And and so last night I'm talking to Jeff about it, and and I say, so um, we're talking about weakness and strength and how God works in our weakness. And, and, and yeah, He really works in our weakness. I said, great, are you willing to do communion tomorrow morning? (laughs) You know, He got out of it today. And I'm not sure exactly how. But you can plan on seeing Jeff. No. (laughs) But it's in our weakness that God can work. Not in our strength, not in our power. It's in Jacob's limp that he is constantly reminded that he has to lean on God as he walks every day the rest of his life. And that is a prevailer. And that is someone who has overcome. There's a famous prayer that was found tucked in the pocket of a soldier who was shot and killed in the Battle of Gettysburg. You may have heard this before. This little piece of paper, it was scrawled. It read, I asked for strength that I might achieve. He made me weak that I might obey. 
I asked for help that I might do great things. He gave me grace so that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. He gave me poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. He gave me weakness that I would feel a need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. He gave me life that I might enjoy all things. I received nothing I asked for and He gave me everything I hoped for. Awesome. We're going to check more of this out on Wednesday night, but the last thing I want to say to you, and I want you to think about it, especially on this Father's Day today. We see Jacob's relentlessness. We see him clinging to God. And we understand from his perspective why he would wrestle with God, because he doesn't want to go on without Him. He won't let go, because man, if he does, and and God leaves without the blessing, he's alone. And Jacob needs God in his life. But what about God? Why does God wrestle with Jacob all night long? Why does he even put up with that? Why does he come in the form of a man and roll around in the dirt and the grime of planet Earth, clinging and wrestling with Jacob all night? Why would he do such a strange and bizarre thing? Jacob is relentless in prayer, but folks, God the Father, he's relentless in love. I love to wrestle with my kids. It's one of my favorite things to do. And as yet, they still can't best me. But I love getting down on the floor with them and tangling and wrestling and tickling and and doing all that. And folks, there's something that happens between a father and a child when wrestling goes on. Intimacy takes place. A closeness. My son Corey is not the biggest hugger in the world. You go up to give him a hug, he'll hug you out of respect, but you know, he's, this is not Corey's thing. Not a big hugger. But when we're wrestling, there's constant contact. It's great. And I just blew my cover. <laughs> but I want you to think just for a moment, again, as we conclude, there are phases of fatherly wrestling with your kids. It starts out where they're young enough, small enough, where you can wrestle and it's physical and you're on the floor and you're having fun and you're laughing and you are wrestling with affection. But then your kids begin to grow older, and parents, you may understand this. You've seen it. As they head into their teenage years, suddenly the wrestling is not a wrestling of affection. It's a wrestling of discipline. Don and I told you when to be in the house. How many times are we going to discuss your homework? Don't you dare talk to your mother that way. And now the wrestling is a totally different thing. It's not fun. It's not affectionate. It's not on the floor rolling around. But it is just as important. Because now the father is wrestling for the sake of discipline. Come on, son. Come on, sweetheart. I I want you to be a person of God. But the wrestling changes yet again. When the kids are grown and out of the house, the wrestling changes to a wrestling alongside them. Affection when they're kids, discipline when they're teenagers, but when they get out of the house, now the parent is wrestling alongside them. Those of you who are out of the house and away from your parents, don't think that your folks are still not wrestling with your lives. Praying for you. Struggling when you struggle. Hurting when you hurt. Right there with you in the thick of it. Though you may not feel that way, when things are not good for you, they're not good for your folks. God the Father wrestles with us. For the sake of intimacy and affection. He wrestles with us for discipline. But never miss this. He continues in your Christian life to wrestle alongside you. 
The Holy Spirit's name is the paraclete, which means to come alongside of. And the Spirit in our lives wrestles with us when we don't even realize He's there. Now gang, I don't know what God has in mind for all of our lives. I don't know what He has in mind for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. I mean, we just kind of keep showing up and going, Lord, what's next? You know, do we need to just knock the wall over and not ask the county's permission? And if you work for the county, just ignore I said that. (laughs) I don't know what He wants to do. But I'm convinced of this one thing. Dad wants to wrestle. The father wants to wrestle with his kids. And you may today need a wrestling of affection. Know that God is there to do that. You may today need a wrestling of discipline. That may be what's going on in your life. Or you may just need to know that the father will always wrestle alongside you. So how do I respond to that? Be relentless in prayer. Don't let go of the Father because He does not want to let go of you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. We'll finish with this. Paul writes, The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you make the Bridge Fellowship a wrestling church. We might not put that up on a sign. People driving by wouldn't get it. But we understand as we look at Jacob relentlessly holding on to you, clinging to you, seeking the blessing. And we do today. Lord, we seek the blessing. Not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because you have promised it. And we know, Father, the blessing comes through your word and by the touch of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And God, on this Father's Day where we recognize our own fathers, we want to recognize you as our true one and only Father who wrestles with us in all situations. Father, bless the bridge. Bless the individuals who are here this morning and bless your work in this region. Not only, Father, among us, but among all churches. Because we know you are near. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.